Fall is here and class is back in session. It's a busy time for students and faculty, and with a new school year comes new adventures, new experiences, and new goals to achieve. But as much promise and excitement as the fall semester brings, there can also be a dark side to it, one in which the unthinkable can happen. I'm Amy Slashberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. As educators and criminologists, we teach, research, write, and podcast about victims, offenders, and the issues that surround our criminal justice system. Amy and I have both worked in the field of criminal justice for 20 years, myself in law enforcement and Amy in the mental health field. In Campus Killings, we'll dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds, and we'll provide our analysis on the cases we cover as both educators and trained criminologists. We'll discuss what went wrong and what could have been done differently to prevent the tragic outcome. Campus Killings is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Campus Killings. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'd guess that most of my listeners are at least a little bit familiar with the serial killer John Wayne Gacy. But did you know that five of his 33 known victims remain unidentified? The recent identification of one of Gacy's victims provided answers to a family which has been wondering about the fate of their loved one for 50 years. I'm not going to go into the whole sordid saga of John Wayne Gacy's depraved crimes, but to provide a little context... John Wayne Gacy was originally from Illinois. He suffered an abusive childhood at the hands of his alcoholic father and was reportedly molested by a male relative. He was also sickly and spent nearly a year in the hospital in his teens. Although he failed to graduate high school, he became involved in local politics in the Chicago area. He also worked for a mortuary service, learning the embalming process and, in one instance, fondling a male corpse. He left the mortuary and graduated from Northwestern Business College and became a shoe salesman. In 1964, despite having had some homosexual experiences, Gacy married a woman named Marilyn, and the couple moved to Iowa so Gacy could manage three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants owned by his wife's parents. This was a lucrative job, and Gacy and his wife had children, but Gacy was unable to stay on the straight and narrow. In 1968, he was convicted of sodomizing a teenage boy and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Marilyn divorced him and won custody of the kids and ownership of their home. Gacy never saw his children again. He served just 18 months, was paroled in June 1970, and hightailed it back to the Chicago area. Gacy bought a house at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue in Norwood Park Township, 
northwest of Chicago with money his mother had given him. He started a successful construction business and became a pillar of the community. There is even a photo of him with the First Lady of the U.S., Rosalind Carter. He also remarried, but the couple divorced in 1976 after Gacy told his wife he was bisexual. Gacy famously appeared as both Patches and Pogo the Clown as a member of the Jolly Joker Clown Club. Meanwhile, his predatory behavior increased. He was charged in two separate incidents for sexual assaults on teen boys in the early 70s, but both cases were dismissed for technical reasons. But Gacy would escalate in a way no one could have imagined. Throughout the 1970s, Gacy killed scores of young men and boys, torturing and raping them before strangling most of them. Then he buried them in a crawl space under his house, dousing the bodies with quicklime to hasten decomposition. I'm giving the extremely shorthand version here. There are, of course, hundreds of books, movies, and documentaries about the sadistic, evil, and prolific homicidal force that was John Wayne Gacy. It all came crashing down when Gacy lured 15-year-old Robert Peast to his home on the pretense of paying him for work on his farm. Robert's mother had been waiting outside for him when, unbeknownst to her, he left with Gacy, so he was reported missing almost immediately. Witnesses told police Peast had left with Gacy. Police background checks revealed scores of criminal complaints about Gacy in the past, as well as a pending sexual battery charge and his Iowa conviction. Police questioned Gacy and spoke with a teenage boy who had survived an assault by the sadistic rapist. They then obtained a search warrant for the farmhouse, suspecting that Gacy might be holding Robert Peast there. I'm cutting to the chase here because this whole investigation took weeks, but Gacy drunkenly confessed to murdering some kids, and police took his home apart. On December 22, 1978, in the crawlspace under his house, they found the decomposed remains of 26 males. Three more male corpses were buried on his property. The crawlspace had become too full of bodies for him to bury any more. Four bodies of deceased young men recently found in the Des Plaines River were claimed by Gacy as his victims as well. The total number of murders of young men and boys attributed to John Wayne Gacy is 33. Gacy was arrested and would never again see the light of day, and police set to work trying to identify all his victims. Gacy did not even know the names of many of them, and often there was no identification with the extremely decomposed bodies. They were able to identify 25 of them. Police believe that many of Gacy's victims were never reported missing. Gacy was careful, at least early on, to select victims who were vulnerable or marginalized, transients, runaways, drifters, dreamers. He lured them to his home with promises of work, pay, food, drink, whatever. They never emerged and became unnamed additions to the ghoulish burial grounds in Gacy's crawlspace, and no one was the wiser. After Gacy's arrest, when investigators had pieced through the bodies and realized they had eight unidentified human beings on their hands, they attributed the lack of names to the failure of families to report loved ones missing. Sometimes families were estranged. Sometimes young people had no close relatives to note their absence. Sometimes relatives assumed their loved ones were just fine or busy traveling. Also, intra-agency communications back in those days were limited. Police officers in Illinois would likely know nothing about a missing persons report in Idaho, for example. He was executed by lethal injection on May 10, 1994. 
His last words were, kiss my ass. Gacy's eight unnamed victims were given proper ceremonial burials by the Cook County authorities. Each of the victims was buried in a grave with a headstone, but those headstones bore no names because they were unknown. More than 30 years later, in 2011, the Cook County Sheriff's Office reopened the Gacy case. Sheriff Tom Dart said, quote, These unidentified young men brutally murdered by this vicious serial killer deserve dignity, and that includes knowing their names. As science evolves, it's important for us to continually apply these new tools to both new and old cases to help victims and their families, end quote. Kudos to Sheriff Dart, a former prosecutor, for his commitment to finding answers simply because it is the right thing to do. Dart's office exhumed the eight Gacy John Doe victims in 2011 and conducted testing to try to determine who they were. The sheriff made a public request for anyone who might have lost touch with a young male relative anywhere near Chicago to submit DNA for potential matching. Forensic anthropologists examined one of the bodies unearthed on December 26, 1978, from Gacy's crawlspace, and determined the following. He was 22 to 32 years old and a 5'9 Caucasian male. He was dressed in a light-colored long-sleeved shirt, dark pants, socks, and a leather belt with a metal buckle. This young man was estimated to have died between late 1976 and March 15, 1977. But this range was not based on any scientific evaluation of his bones or analysis of his shreds of desiccated tissue. It was based on the fact that his remains had been placed in the crawl space underneath another identified Gacy victim whose date of death was known as March 15, 1977. This John Doe was entered into NamUs as ID UP10994. He was known to those working on his case as Gacy Victim 5. I'm paraphrasing this next bit from the DNA Doe Project website. In 2019, the Cook County Sheriff's Office and the DNA Doe Project began a collaboration to consider using investigative genetic genealogy to help resolve some of Cook County's remaining unidentified victims. Gacy Victim 5 was ultimately selected as a promising first case. Cook County Sheriff's Lieutenant Jason Moran removed an intact molar and part of Gacy Victim 5's jawbone and sent them to Estrella Forensics in Santa Cruz, California, for DNA extraction. The sample was then delivered to Hudson Alpha Discovery in Huntsville, Alabama, for whole genome sequencing. Once sequencing was completed, the file was sent to Sabre Investigations for Bioinformatics, whereupon the resulting DNA file was uploaded to GEDmatch. So as you can hear, the Sheriff's Office, anxious to give Gacy Victim 5 back his name, partnered with the nonprofit DNA Doe Project to conduct forensic genealogy. Gacy Victim 5 offered viable genetic material to work with in intact teeth still attached to the jawbone. When the genealogist, DNA Doe Project team leader Karen Binder, entered his profile into GEDmatch, she found several relatives on both sides of his family tree. On his maternal side, a second cousin sharing maternal great-great-grandparents with Gacy Victim 5 had 279 centimorgans of shared DNA with him. There was also a fifth cousin sharing 43 centimorgans on his maternal side. On the paternal side, two key matches were available, a third cousin once removed sharing 58.4 centimorgans 
and a fifth cousin once removed sharing 82 centimorgans. Well-documented lineages of both sides of the family tree permitted relatively easy triangulation, and the genealogist was able to identify a common ancestral couple married in the 19th century from whom the unidentified Gacy victim was descended. From that point, a family tree of all the descendants of this couple was constructed, and men in the tree were eliminated if they were the wrong age or were still alive. The genealogist had a lead for Lieutenant Moran within eight hours of uploading the sample into GEDmatch. She suspected that Gacy victim 5 was Francis Wayne Alexander, known to his family as Wayne. In order to confirm this identification, Cook County authorities contacted Wayne's mother and half-brother, who were still living, and obtained DNA samples from them. Kinship testing proved that Gacy victim 5 was indeed Francis Wayne Alexander, identified after more than 40 years of anonymity. So who was Francis Wayne Alexander? Wayne was born on March 11, 1955, in Manchester, North Carolina, to parents Edwin Hollister Alexander and Doris Stevens Alexander. He lived for a time in New York and married there quite young. He and his wife moved to Chicago in February 1975, soon after their wedding. However, the couple divorced within three months, and for most of 1975, Wayne was single and residing in Chicago. He remained in contact with his family in North Carolina, sending letters and postcards documenting his travels. The last postcard his family received was dated 1976 and postmarked from California. When they heard nothing more from him, the Alexanders contacted authorities in California and inquired about a return address on the postcard. But police verified there was no longer a Wayne Alexander at that address. The Alexanders had no idea where Wayne had gone, and they did not contact authorities in Chicago or file a missing persons report. As Sheriff Dart put it, quote, They loved him, but they thought that he wanted nothing more to do with them, so that's why there never was a missing persons report. Now that they knew his identity, investigators tried to reconstruct Wayne's last known movements to determine how and when he came into contact with the infamous serial killer who ended his life. Sheriff Dart's investigators uncovered a parking ticket from January 5, 1976 that was issued to Wayne in Cook County. But there were no records reflecting that Wayne earned any income or left any kind of paper trail for most of 1976. According to an October 2021 press release from the Cook County Sheriff's Office, quote, Sheriff's police found there is no other proof of life for Alexander after this time. As for how Gacy and Wayne crossed paths, records showed that Wayne lived on Winona Street on the north side of Chicago. Investigators had traced the origins of contact between John Wayne Gacy and some of his other victims to this same neighborhood. As Sheriff Dart put it, Wayne had the misfortune of living in a serial killer's preferred hunting grounds. Wayne's income was recorded as coming from jobs in bars and clubs. He was not a laborer like many of Gacy's victims. Investigators do not know exactly how or when Gacy and Wayne came into contact, but it seems to me possible that it was at one of these bars or clubs. Investigators concluded that Gacy killed Wayne sometime between early 1976 and early 1977. 
Wayne was just 21 or 22 when he fell victim to the serial killer responsible for taking 33 young lives. As I wrote this, I realized that Francis Wayne Alexander had the same middle name as his killer. Wayne's family was notified of the official identification of their loved one on October 22, 2021. He was survived by his mother, two half-sisters, and two half-brothers. The family issued the following statement via Carolyn Sanders, Wayne's sister. Let us start by thanking Sheriff Tom Dart, Lieutenant Jason Moran, the hardworking officers of the Cook County Sheriff's Office, and the DNA Doe Project. Without their tireless efforts, our family would not have the closure we do now. It is hard, even 45 years later, to know the fate of our beloved Wayne. He was killed at the hands of a vile and evil man. Our hearts are heavy and our sympathies go out to the other victims' families. Our only comfort is knowing this killer no longer breathes the same air we do. We can now lay to rest what happened and move forward in honoring Wayne. We ask that you respect our wishes of privacy as we process this tragedy. Thank you. Signed, a mother who now has closure, sisters who now have closure, brothers who now have closure. On October 25th, Sheriff Dart held a news conference announcing the identification of Wayne Alexander. I'm ecstatic we were able to bring some closure, he said. At the press conference, Margaret Press, co-founder and CEO of the DNA Doe Project, also spoke. She said, We are honored to have played a part in giving Francis Wayne Alexander his name back and return him to his loved ones. We extend our deepest sympathy to his family. Sheriff Dart noted that the Cook County investigators had never before heard Wayne's name. Without forensic genealogy, he almost certainly would never have been identified. This was the first case in which Cook County authorities used forensic genealogy to identify a doe. And it sounds like it won't be the last. Cook County Sheriff Dart said that Wayne lived blocks away from another Gacy victim, William Bundy, who had also been a John Doe before being identified in 2011 through DNA matching. Numerous other Gacy victims also resided in the same general area. Three Gacy victims have now been identified since the case was reopened in 2011, Wayne Alexander, William Bundy, and James Hawkinson. Sheriff Dart said that in their quest to identify the unnamed Gacy victims, the sheriff's office had solved four other cold case deaths and located seven missing persons. Five male victims of John Wayne Gacy remain unidentified. Updated DNA profiles have now been obtained for each of these victims, and the sheriff's office continues to investigate those cases. They intend to use forensic genealogy, if possible, to give these men back their names. Anyone who believes their male relative may have been a Gacy victim is asked to visit the Sheriff's Department website or call the Sheriff's Police at 708-865-6244. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, 
If you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID.